Okay, hey, we are into the book of Ephesians. Um, we're going to give a lot of background information today, so you can open up to the book of Acts, um, chapter 20, and that's where we'll start today, Acts chapter 20, and we'll eventually move into Ephesians. And I don't know about you guys, but I'm excited for Ephesians. How many of you are excited for Ephesians? Okay, let me, let me try this. How many of you love the ducks? How many of you love the beavers? Okay, now that you're in the mood for cheering, how many of you love the book of Ephesians? There we go. All right, we got it. Good, good. Okay. Well, you've all probably guessed, if you've listened to me for any amount of time, that I love stories. Stories are my favorite. I especially love stories that are true. I'm not a big fiction guy. And the true stories of history are amazing. I don't know about if you're one of these people, but when I was younger and my dad would pull over to the side of the road, right, and he'd say, oh, a historical marker, let's get out and read it, I would go, oh, anybody else like that? Yeah, okay. How many of you are still like that? Okay, awesome. All right. So I probably bore you to death. Uh, now I'm one of those guys who, man, when I see the marker, I pull over and get out. I don't care if my family gets out. I want to go read it. And the reason is because I love to know the background of how something came to be, what occurred there. I love standing in a place and looking out and seeing and knowing what was happening there. I love painting the the tapestry and the picture of how that place came to be. If we look truly at history and understand it for what it's supposed to be, we can gain a rich picture of the lessons of the past. And this is one of the many reasons I am so excited to start Ephesians is because probably more than any other book in the Bible, Ephesians has surrounding it so much context in other books of the Bible that just reading your Bible, you can gain immense understanding of what was occurring at the time of Paul and Timothy in the city of Ephesus. And so within this epistle that we're going to look at for the next year, Ephesians, we are going to be able to get a lot of understanding of words that Paul uses and what he means based on other places in the Bible. And so this morning, I will admit to you that it's going to be a little bit academic. There's going to be lots of information But I really want us to get this down. And you can go back and you can re-listen to it. I'm going to have slides. You can go back and re-look at the slides online. But I want you to just kind of follow with me to start to paint that picture, that background of the book of Ephesians. So that as we move into it, we understand why Paul was even writing it. Okay? Now... How many of you go online and, and you every once in a while catch one of those things that's on Facebook or whatever else that is someone's text message, right? And it's like funny because they screwed up in the text message. Anybody ever looked at those, right? Some of you are holy and you don't read Facebook, right? Yeah. Amen. Okay. Amen. <laughs> when you read those, you, you can kind of see what's going on, but you're missing the context, right? How many of us would like to hand our phone over to somebody to read all of our text messages without understanding the context of each relationship? You wouldn't. And so this is really helpful for us to not just read Ephesians as a standalone letter, a standalone text, but to understand what's going on in there. And so we're going to see from Luke's historical recounting in the book of Acts, Paul's two letters to Timothy, the lead pastor in the church of Ephesus, and a note from the apostle John in Revelation. From these things, we're going to start to piece together what was occurring. And from that colorful background, we're going to start to understand what the book of Ephesians was all about. So let's begin by kind of painting this background and looking at it. Does that sound good to you guys? You guys up for that? Yeah? Okay. Historical background of the letter to Ephesus. The first thing I want to look at is I want to look at the timing. Okay? In Israel, specifically in the city of Jerusalem, okay, this is a picture of of Greece up there, and you got Italy with Rome and Turkey, uh, and then Israel, okay, Mediterranean Sea, Aegean Sea, all that fun stuff. 
In Jerusalem, around the year 30 to 33 AD, we're not exactly sure which year, a rabbi known as Yeshua of Nazareth, a leader of a new sect of Judaism, claimed to be what the Old Testament called the Messiah, right? You guys now know him. We know him as Jesus Christ. And Jesus proclaimed for three years that he was fulfilling everything from the Old Testament. And people started to flock to him and follow him. And one day, because his following was starting to annoy certain groups of people, he was killed on a cross, pierced, stabbed in the side, whipped, beaten, bruised. He was buried. Three days later, he resurrected. And that resurrection... That rebirth from death created such a movement in the people that followed him that death itself could not keep them from following him. And all of a sudden, words started to get out because people were seeing this man who was dead, but now he was resurrected. And then he went even further in the apostles. They watched him ascend into heaven, saying that he would come back one day to judge the living and the dead. Now, this is amazing stuff. And so words started to get out. Well, the apostles were scared to death and they went and they hid together and then the Spirit came to them in the book of Acts and uh, like a big wind, there was a, a movement and tongues of fire create, were created over their heads and all of a sudden they went out and they had empowerment to go and speak the truth that Jesus had died and resurrected and he had died for the sins of the world and that mankind needed to repent and turn to him and hold him as their king. And they were doing this in a way where everyone was hearing them in their own languages. You see, Jerusalem was full on that day of people from other countries there to celebrate Yahweh, the, the, the God of the Jews, the God we serve, the God of the Bible. And they were celebrating what was called the Feast of Pentecost. And they heard this new message that Yahweh was glorified and proclaimed through Yeshua, Jesus. And they said, we've got to take this home. And so within a few weeks, the place uh, of Jerusalem was growing with thousands of people in this new fledgling church, but other people had left and they had gone uh, from this point in 33 AD all the way to their places uh, of uh, their, their homes, such as Antioch and Tarsus and into Galatia, and they were taking this message with them. Well, at the same time that this was happening, a young man named Saul was being converted by Jesus. Here's his story. He was going to Antioch to destroy the people, imprison them, kill them that were following Jesus. And he was on the road to Damascus when he was basically knocked down. And he heard a voice from heaven speak to him, and it was Jesus. And Jesus said, why are you persecuting me, Paul? And Saul, he was going to go to kill the people of Antioch, or at the very least, imprison them. And Jesus said, why are you persecuting me? And all of a sudden, he converted him and changed him. And this Pharisee that had been zealous for Yahweh, realized now to be zealous for Yahweh, meant following Jesus Christ. And so after his conversion experience, he was taken by the church and hidden because the Pharisees wanted to kill him. The Jews wanted to kill him. And so he was hidden, most likely, in Tarsus. And then, after a little while, he was brought to the church at Antioch, to help be an elder and lead that church. And he was there for a good long time. From Antioch, he was sent out with two men known as Barnabas and John Mark. And this was um, basically many years later, 46 to 49 AD. That's when we generally think that his first missionary journey occurred. And I have in there, it's Acts 13 and 14. You can go look it up on your own. But Paul, uh, that was his Greek name. Saul was his Hebrew name. He didn't change his name. He was Saul for the Hebrews, Paul for the Greeks. 
He left and he went on this missionary journey and he took Barnabas and John Mark and they went throughout the country known as Galatia at the time, what we would call Turkey today. This is their order. They went down to Cyprus and then up into Asia Minor and went around and then they eventually came back. And he did this work from 46 to 49 AD and uh, this was huge news. And the huge news was because, guys, this is Gentile land. This is not the covenant people of God. And everything we just went through for a year in Isaiah, over and over again, of God saying, I will reach out to the nations, and Jerusalem will be a place that is drawn, drawing all of God's covenant people. Well, the message was now going from Jerusalem throughout the entire world, and Gentiles who were outside God's covenant were now brought into it. This was massive, massive news. Up until this point, to be a Gentile, you had to stop being a Gentile to be one of God's people. You had to be circumcised if you were a male. And so this was amazing. This was the fulfillment of tons of Old Testament prophecy because God was proving faithful to his promise to restore all the world from the base camp of Jerusalem. All the way back to Genesis 12 when he said to Abraham, Abraham, through your seed, the world will be blessed. It's starting to happen. Well, then in AD 53 to 58, during Paul's third missionary journey, Paul went back to Ephesus, this place that he had been, or excuse me, in his second missionary journey. Uh, he went to um, a place called Ephesus. And so we start to see in 50 to 52 that he was making different rounds. He went up into Galatia, the place that he knew, and he went back to places like Derby and Lystra there in the center. But he also went all the way around, and you can see Ephesus there uh, on the, the um, western coast of Asia Minor. Okay, that's where Ephesus is. Now, um, how many of you loved the Wonder Woman movie? Raise your hand. Okay, anybody? Come on, it's okay. All of you are thinking, where is he going with this right now? (laughs) What was the name of Wonder Woman? What's her first name for all you comic? Diana, okay? Diana is the Roman name for the Greek goddess Artemis. Artemis is another name for the goddess that we know as Astarte, who is worshipped as Easter. Okay? It's a very well-known goddess name. Okay? Now, we have redeemed Easter and made it about Jesus, but originally the celebration of Easter was for Astarte, Artemis, Diana. And Diana, do you remember who she comes from? What are her people in Wonder Woman? The Amazons. Guess who founded Ephesus? The Amazons. Now, you think I'm crazy, but go look up the history. Mythologically, they believe that the Amazons founded Ephesus and that a rock fell from heaven, and that rock was a sign that they needed to start worshiping their goddess Diana. Okay? So everybody's like, history's boring, but y'all go pay 15 bucks to go watch it on a screen, right, if she's good looking. Yeah, right? I'm not as good looking. I get that. Okay? All right? But it's very much alive and well. The truth of this is very much alive and well. And Ephesus, as we will see, bears a striking resemblance to our world today in a lot of different ways. Well, during the second trip, he went to Ephesus. uh, And he also, in that place called Lystra and Derby, okay, that area right there in the center, he recruited a young man named Timothy. Okay? This young man had been influential in the church there. And by young, I mean he was probably, at the time Paul pulled him, in his uh, late 20s to early 30s. Um, And Timothy became his protege and started traveling with him. And during this uh, trip, Paul took the gospel as far as Greece and all the way across um, Turkey. Well then, uh, in uh, 53 
to 58 AD. There we go. Um, sorry, I just lost my, there we go. 53 to 58 AD, there was a third missionary journey that they went on. And you can go look all these up. There's the, the references in Acts. And during this journey, he spent two years at the, the uh, city of Ephesus. Now, the reason for this is because Ephesus, as we'll see in a second, was a massive staging ground for sending the gospel throughout the Gentile world. And when Paul got there, there was so much bad theology mixed into the people and the church that he stayed for two years, and he worked bivocationally. He had his tent-making job that he would work at during the day, and then he would go and preach in houses at night. And during his lunch break, he would go and he would preach at a place called the Hall of Tyrannus, okay? Kind of like a school, all right? And he would change their theology slowly but surely, trying to get them to be a healthy church because they were surrounded by so much unhealth and so much bad theology. And so this church was going to become massive in the history of the church because Timothy would preach there. Priscilla and Aquila would preach there. Uh, Apollos would preach there. And eventually, even the apostle John would preach and teach there. And as you'll see, one of the main things that they were preaching and teaching was loving one another. And that's why the tradition states that John, in one instance, got up on stage when he was very old and could barely walk. And he said to the people of Ephesus, little children, love one another, love one another love one another. And then he got down and sat down. This church had tons of wisdom coming to it, but they were a place of massive spiritual warfare. And Paul knew this. And so he knew that it was going to be a fight to keep the church of God strong and healthy in this place. And so on his last missionary journey, on his way to uh, Jerusalem and eventually to Rome to be um, imprisoned, Um, he stops, not at Ephesus, but at a place even closer to the ocean known as Miletus. Okay, you can see it there circled. And what he does there is he calls all of the elders of the Ephesian church to himself. And he says, guys, I want to give you one last pep talk and I want to give you a big hug. And this is where we join him in Acts chapter 20. Okay, take a look with me at Acts 20, verse 17. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the mystery that I received from the Lord Jesus, ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of uh, you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. You see, that's what a faithful pastor does. He preaches the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, 
not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will rise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said it is more blessed to give than to receive. See, one of the big problems in Ephesus, as we'll see in a second, is that Ephesus was very, very wealthy. The people that lived in Ephesus were in the top percentage of wealth in the world. And in that church, there was a problem of people giving. There was a problem of people paying the pastor. There was a problem of people taking care of the poor because they were so concerned about keeping hold of their own kingdoms. And so you'll see this over and over again that often when Paul is talking about issues of money, he's talking about Ephesus. That rich have a hard time letting go of their riches. And so he was saying, guys, this is going to be an issue for you. And there's going to be people that come in and draw their people off and divide the flock. Be aware of these things. And so then when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all, and they embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word that he had spoken that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to his ship. Little did Paul know how correct he was. At this moment, saying these things, that Ephesus would become a central point of spreading the gospel in an intense place of spiritual conflict. What this takes us to is this takes us to the question of what was Ephesus like? Why was there so much spiritual conflict here? And if you're taking down notes, you can write down that we're going to look at the cultural background of the letter to Ephesus. Not just the historical, but the cultural here. One of the main ways that Paul got the gospel out into surrounding areas is he would go to a city like Ouagadougou, Burkina Faso. And he'd say, okay, rural pastors, come into Ouagadougou, and and I'm going to train all of you. He never went to Ouagadougou, okay, just to be clear, right? I'll train all of you, and then I'll send you back out. And so he went to the political centers and the economic centers of the various areas that he went to, and he sent people out from there. Now, Ephesus was one of those places because at the time of Paul, it was potentially the fourth largest city in the entire known world. Fourth largest city, okay? So it's like an L.A., all right? Or probably in our world, uh, maybe a a city in the middle of India or China, okay? About 250,000 people lived there. Now we go, ah, that's not that big. For that day, that was big. It was at the center of commerce for Asia Minor. One side of the city was bordered uh, by a harbor of the Aegean Sea. You can kind of see it there up in the top left. And then there was also a river that ran around it, the Caister River. And Ephesus was central to trade and commerce of Asia Minor. If you lived in Ephesus, Ephesus was the place to go, man. Right? It's where all the hipsters wanted to be. Okay? Because it was the place where new things happened, new trends happened, people made money, people made it big, right? Instagram accounts blew up, that kind of stuff. Okay? And the reality was, was this is what he was stepping into. And it's one of the largest trades, what the townspeople exported was religion. It was a religion of the goddess Artemis, as we've talked about, Diana or Astarte. This was her temple, or at least one view of it. They've drawn it. You can't see it anymore. But it was known as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. The adherents of her religion viewed this temple as her throne, her seat on earth. 
and that she was spiritually imminent among them. One of the things that's so important to know about the book of Ephesians is that many of the statements that Paul makes and the metaphors he uses is his direct attack on this cult and the other cults of the city. For example, the Ephesians would have said that this is the temple of Artemis and that Artemis dwells in the midst of her temple. Ephesus is where we get the statement that we are being a temple as the church of Christ being built up with the spirit of God in our midst. That's a direct right hook on Diana, Artemis, and this cult. Over and over again in Ephesians, you're going to see these kinds of statements. You're going to see that Paul says, Savior to all people, especially to those who follow him. And this is because Diana was known as the Savior with a capital S. You're going to see in chapter 1 that God is called the Father who has adopted his children because Artemis was known as the mother goddess who adopted her kids. There are direct attacks throughout that if you know the background, you're going to see what's going on. Let me give you a picture of this amazing, beautiful woman. Are you ready? You ready for Diana? You know, tall, dark hair flowing in the wind like the current movie? That's her. Okay? She's tapered legs like she's in a sarcophagus. She would have two animals on either side. She's got little tiny animals all over her. I think those are mostly pigs on her, on her skirt there. Okay? Her neck is surrounded by clusters of grapes and signs of the zodiac. Okay? So it cracks me up when Christians are like, oh yeah, I just dabble in the zodiac a little bit. Hey, what's your sign? Right? Okay? That is diametrically opposed to the kingdom of God. It comes from an enemy of the kingdom of God. Just so you know. Okay? No soapbox there. Just letting you know. She's got a crown because she is the head of that kingdom. Who's the head of our kingdom? Jesus. Jesus Christ, the king. And those things surrounding her, many people have debated, are they mammary glands? No, they're actually bull testicles because she is also the goddess of prosperity and fertility. This society was hypersexual and hyper-worried about prosperity. One of the biggest problems that crept into the Ephesian church was an idea that to be a good Christian meant you had to be rich and prosperous. Does it sound like any other societies that we're used to? This is very much our society. We don't have this ugly statue standing in place, places. Uh, that's a close-up of her if you didn't get a close enough look. Okay. Let's see if I can zoom in a bit more. No. Okay, the reality is, is that Jesus came to destroy this cult to destroy all cults that are against him and wrongly imprison people in false religions. And so Paul was going in as an enemy of these people, and it was very clear from the get-go that this was not just about something small, it was about a kingdom versus a kingdom. Turn with me to Acts 19, go back a little bit, Acts 19, and take a look at verse 23, and we're going to see what happened there. When Paul goes in and starts proclaiming the gospel truth, that Jesus died to save sinners who were opposed to God, and if they had faith in him, they would become his. And in so doing, he was establishing his kingdom, that he would come back and take full reign at the end of days. When this kind of a statement was made, here's what ended up happening. Uh, look at verse uh, 23. About that time, this is 1923 in Acts, about that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. That was what the Christian church was originally called, was the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. 
These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. You see, if Jesus was just another way into heaven, the Ephesians would have been all over it, man. They had shrines to Artemis and to Isis. You familiar with that name, Isis? Okay, the Egyptian goddess. They had shrines to Zeus. They had shrines to the various Caesars. If Paul had come in and said, Jesus is just another way into heaven, they would have gone, sweet, dude, let's build a building and we can start worshiping him too. But what Paul walked in and said was probably something along the lines of what Peter said in Acts chapter 4. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which mankind must be saved. None. And so, what happens when you say there is one way? People get frustrated. And that's what happens here. And so, there is danger, he says, verse 27. Not only that this trait of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence. See, when you start touching somebody's idol, they get touchy. Okay? She whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Okay? Who's their allegiance to? Artemis. Okay? So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Okay, get this for a second. See if this is anything like our day. They had a gigantic, one of the most well-known athletic arenas in the entire world. They did gladiatorial games all the time. People ate it up. I guarantee Timothy, almost every Sunday, had to say, guys, I know y'all want to be watching the gladiatorial games, but, you know, we kind of have allegiance to Jesus. Oh, Timothy, stop being legalistic. Sports are good, right? I guarantee he had to do that. And they also had a stadium, that fit 24 to 25,000 people. That's a big stadium even in today's world. And so they drug him into the stadium, this city that was all about their entertainment, all about their athletics, all about their money, all about their sexuality. Does this sound like it's pertinent to today at all? Okay. And they said, we got to get rid of this guy. He's, He's busting up our lifestyle. And so they cried one thing, some another. This is verse 32. For the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. <laughs> Don't you love that? Right? Down with whoever, right? Okay. It's kind of like Portland, right? I don't know who we're rioting against, but I'm here to riot, right? Okay. Uh, we're, we're bringing down the man. Who's the man? I don't know, but he's the man, right? That's what they were doing. And so some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew for about two hours, they all cried with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Right? Hell no, we won't go! Right? Okay, that's kind of what they were doing. Right? And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know, uh, who is there who, who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper, of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky. You see, 
they directly believed that the God that came from heaven and came to earth was Artemis. You think that's in direct opposition to the gospel that we serve? Yeah. And seeing that these things cannot be denied, he says, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. (laughs) He was actually incorrect. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. And just so you know, guys, that word assembly there and the one that follows is the word ekklesia in the Greek. It's the same word that is translated church in other instances. Okay? Words have different meanings. Here it's the assembly of the people. Verse 40, For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the ecclesia, the assembly. Okay? So this is the situation of Ephesus. Okay, let's pause for a second. How many of you, if you, God stepped down into heaven, or from heaven and said, um, you know, I really want you to plant a church. And I'd like you to do it in Hawaii on the beaches of Maui. How many of you would be up for that? Raise your hand. Okay. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. How about this? I would really like you to start a church. You're going to walk into the pit of hell where everyone is diametrically opposed to you. No one likes you. And you'll probably be stoned in the middle of a stadium. Raise your hand. Anybody? That's what he was walking into. Now, Paul most likely planted this church in Ephesus. The lordship of Christ that he taught was in direct opposition to the lordship of this woman and the lordship, honestly, of the idols of the people. And so the kingdom of Christ had been set up in direct contrast to the kingdom of Artemis and the Greek and Roman system of gods. And after this, some, some short time later, is when Paul came back a few, maybe even a year later, and he met with the elders and then was sent to Caesarea and then Rome. And during this imprisonment, this period of time, is when he wrote Ephesians. Okay, along with Colossians, Philippians, and Philemon. And so he wrote Ephesians from a prison cell back to this group saying, guys, I know that it's tough, but I want to encourage you. Okay? Now, this is where we got to break it down a little bit further and go into this. You guys are doing a great job. Everybody okay so far? You following me? Okay. Here we go. Here's, we're going to do the immediate context of the letter of the uh, Ephesians. Okay? Letter to Ephesus. Now, this is going to sound overly academic again, but I'm sorry, but it's, it's really important for you to understand because Ephesians is a little bit different. You read Romans, and you look at the end, and Paul's like, yo, say what's up to Phoebe, and say what's up to Jim over here, and Fred, all my homies, right? Okay, that's not what he says, right? You're supposed to laugh. That's a terrible, yeah. <laughs> never mind, okay? He says, say hi to all my friends. Ephesians, you look at the end, and there's really nothing like that. And if you read through it, it's actually very impersonal. It's spoken almost as a theological treatise. And so theologians for years have debated, was this actually sent to Ephesus? Well, when we look at the Bible that we hold in our hands, okay, and and this might be new information for some of you, we must realize that it wasn't written this way, okay? It wasn't written in English. Every English translation is a commentary on the original languages of Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic. And so when we go back and we say, how can we get the closest translation of English to the original author's intent? One of the things that we get to do is we get to look at all sorts of manuscripts. We have more manuscripts of the Bible and portions of the Bible than any other book that we teach in schools or use. It's amazing. We have tons of manuscripts. Now, one of the problems with the book of Ephesians, and turn there with me now, go to Ephesians chapter 1. 
One of the tough parts about the book of Ephesians is that the majority of, of manuscripts uh, that we have all say the same thing and, and they give credence to this letter, but there are four old manuscripts, and they are strong manuscripts, that exclude two words, okay? If you look at Ephesians 1, verse 1, here's the first two verses. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. In four of the early manuscripts, the words en Ephesus are not there. In Ephesus. In those manuscripts, it says this, to the saints who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Anyway, I'd say, Hans, you're boring me with looking at the text. Well, this is, this is why it's important. We know from the content of the letter that Paul was absolutely addressing some of the issues in Ephesus. So it had to go to Ephesus at some point. And the majority of manuscripts say that it went to Ephesus because it's titled to the Ephesians. But what we've come to understand over the course of time and looking at all the manuscripts is that most likely this letter was not intended just for the church at Ephesus. It was intended as what was called an encyclical. It was a letter that was sent to the primary city so that it could then be copied and the name could be changed, kind of like the the junk mail you get that says instead of to whom it may concern, it says, hi, Hans, my old friend, right? And I just plunked my name in there. You get the same one. You know what I'm saying? Okay. It, was, it was, would be copied and sent out to the other places. Uh, for example, in Colossians, it references a letter that was sent to Laodicea. Most people, uh, theologians have come to agreement that, that uh, this letter, the Ephesians, was probably copied and sent to the church at Laodicea, and they read the same thing. We're not 100% sure, but a lot of people believe that. And so this is why this is important for us. When we look at this letter, we have to realize that it wasn't just for the people of Ephesus. It wasn't just for the people at at, uh, Laodicea. This was written as a a letter that would speak the building blocks of what it was to be Christian and what it was to be the church. You see, Ephesus was in so much disarray that Paul sent this letter with an understanding that he wanted to rebuild the church. And he wanted to start from the ground floor up and say, guys, we got some stuff that's broken We got some unhealth in the midst of our church and we need to do a really good job of starting from the basics of what it is to be the Christian church. And we're going to speak to that. One of the commentaries uh, puts it this way. While it is not the longest of the Pauline epistles, Ephesians is the one that best sets out the basic concepts of the Christian faith. This letter is huge for what it is to be a Christian and for what it is to follow Christ as his church. And I, I think we'll find as we read it that Paul begins to encapsulate after 30 years of ministry some of his ideas that in some of his earlier letters kind of are taking form. He encapsulates them and puts them in place in Ephesians in a way he doesn't in other letters. And while all of it's inspired, I think we look to this letter and say, man, this has some really important stuff. Well, this pep talk to the elders at Miletus and to the elders uh, or, and uh, the letter of the, uh, to the Ephesians may have worked for a little while, but as happens with many churches, humanity ended up creeping in. And apathy and disobedience and quarreling over tiny things and on and on it went. We know from the Bible that Ephesus was not doing well. There was pastoral chaos. Leaders were being put in place that shouldn't have been there. Benevolence was going out to people that were abusing the system and leaving the church. Elders were being accused by people who had a beef with them when there was no backing to their accusations. All sorts of stuff was happening. And word of this reached Paul, and so he felt the need to send his protege, Timothy, to clean things up. How would you like that job? 
right? Timothy was sent to bring order to the chaos. Now, in one of his letters, Paul calls Timothy young. He says, don't, I'll, we'll read this in a second, don't let him worry about your age. Now, I've always read that and gone, oh man, poor guy, he was probably in his like early 20s, maybe even late teens. No, you know how old he was? My age. <laughs> he was mid to late 30s. And he was sent to clean up a church to help it grow and prosper. And so he sent out Timothy, and Timothy would spend the next 40 to 50 years of his life at Ephesus battling tooth and nail. It would be a battle fighting for what they believed the church should look like. It was such a battle that on at least two occasions, Paul found it necessary in his writings to Timothy to point out individual names of people that were continually sinning, and he says to them, rebuke them in the presence of all, meaning the entire church, so that the rest may stand in fear. Yikes, Paul. Whew, buddy, right? That's how bad the situation had gotten. In those two statements of those two people, one of the people is the same name. We don't know for sure if it was the same, same guy. But for all eternity, a, named, a dude named Hymenaeus was said to be a sinner that needed to be rebuked and put out of the church. That's how bad the situation was in the midst of Ephesus. You think it felt like the spirit wasn't there with that kind of chaos? You think people were wondering, man, what is this Paul guy and Timothy guy? What are they doing? Well, if you read some of Paul's writings to Timothy, you can see not only Paul's instruction on how to run the church, basics of logistics, but he also sent his statement of encouragement to Timothy over and over again. Turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4, starting in verse 6. Now, we'll hit First and Second Timothy a ton as we go throughout the book of Ephesians. But let's just look at one statement of encouragement that he says on this topic of, of being young. First Timothy 4, 6. He says, if you put these things, things that he's been talking about beforehand, and, and, and realize that the last chapter and a half was just spent talking about how to put leaders in order to make the church orderly. Okay, that's how out of order it was. He says, if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way. So I tell myself that every time I don't want to work out, just so you know. It's one of my life verses. Okay. I'll let that kick in for a second. All right. As it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end, we toil and strive. Okay? Now, I don't know about you guys, but when Christianity was first spoken to me, there was nothing about toiling and striving. It was supposed to come easy and be nice and happy all the time. But Timothy was a faithful servant, and yet he was toiling and striving. Why? Because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have which was given to you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things, immerse yourself in them, so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. Now, this is a statement of encouragement. 
And if we understand the context behind it, we go, oh, Timothy, can I give you a hug? Especially as a pastor, I'm like, oh, brother, feel you, right? Feel you. There was chaos in the midst of the church, and Timothy was trying to help the church be healthy, but people were quarreling about words and doing all sorts of crazy stuff, and it got so bad, look at chapter 5, verse 23, that Paul told him, buddy, start drinking. Verse 23, no longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. His anxiety and depression had gotten so bad that Paul was like, dude, I know you can't sleep. Have a little wine. It's right there, guys. Okay, if you're going to fight me and go, oh, Hans is telling people to be drunk. That's not what I said. Go back to the qualifications of elder and deacon that says, don't let them be drunkards. But this is what he says. He says, man, it's getting so bad. I know. I know you're having a hard time. I know your stomach is turning knots because you're trying to set the church right and everybody's going crazy. Start drinking. (laughs) Don't worry. I'm not going to follow the same exact advice. All right. In the midst of the fledgling church, Timothy was sent to bring order to chaos. Paul knew that if the church in Ephesus could not reflect the power of the gospel through the unity of the church, that there was this chaos and people were treating each other like garbage and no order was in place, they weren't going to be able to fulfill what Christ had called them to. Unfortunately, roughly 30 years later, it got so bad that John had to say to the church, guys, you are totally upside down. Well, what did he tell them they were upside down in? Everybody turn with me uh, to Revelation 2. I've got it up on the board here for those of you who don't want to turn there. Here's what he told the church of Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2, verse 2. He says to them, he says, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. Sounds like a pretty faithful church, right? How you cannot bear with those who are evil and have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake and you have not grown weary. Question, question. How this section is usually translated is that Ephesus had left Jesus because of a bad translation in the King James that says, in a second we'll see it, they left their first love. That's a bad translation. Had they left Jesus here? I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake. This is Jesus speaking to the church at Ephesus. Have they left Jesus? No. No. And you have not grown weary. In fact, they've been fighting so hard for doctrine, doctrinal purity, that they missed out the point of being the church. He says, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Which love is he talking about there? The love that they had for Christ or the love that they had for who? one another. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. What are the works you think that they were supposed to do at first? The works that they were supposed to do were loving one another, practically. If not, he says, if you don't love each other, and remember, they had just struggled for doctrinal purity, right? Hammered it home. He says, if you don't repent and start loving each other, I'm going to come and remove your lampstand from its place. That is language that says you will not be considered a church any longer. Because doctrinal purity is not a statement of the spirit. Love is. Proof of the spirit in a church is love. Now, don't get me wrong here. I know people are going to misquote me and say, Hans said the doctrinal purity does not matter. That's not what I just said. What I said is that if you raise doctrinal purity over and above the people you're supposed to love to the point where it causes division, you are in sin. 
Jesus just told him that. Go read commentaries, go look at it. That is what this means. Now, can you start saying that Jesus isn't the only way to heaven, that he's not God? No. Then you're totally in error against the entire rest of the Bible. But if you start nitpicking hairs over and above loving people, you are in sin. The love that's reflected here is the love that they had for one another. The consequences, if there is no repentance in the church, they're going to be removed as a church. This was the problem of Ephesians. Ephesus had no love. And that's why in the book of Ephesus, go ahead and go back there with me. In the book of Ephesus, ten times Paul uses the word agapos or agape. Love. Five times he's specifically speaking about the love Christ has for us, and five times he's talking about the love as it pours out to one another. And this is my concern for this church as your pastor. We want to be a church that makes disciples of Jesus by teaching, equipping, and sending. And part of that process is to equip you as ministers of the gospel, individually and corporately. And to do so, we've realized that we need to understand what Paul meant when he spoke about the church. What we'll find in Ephesus is that it's a a group of people, the church there, is joined together because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel that Jesus came to this earth, fully God, fully man. He stepped into a world that was his enemy that hated him. And while we were yet sinners, he died for us. He died for our sin, your sin and mine. And to prove that he actually had defeated it, he was killed on a cross where the Bible pictures him, in a sense, being lifted up or the beginning of his positioning as king. And he was put in a grave, in a tomb, and he rose three days later, proving that he had defeated death and sin. And then he showed himself for 40 days to all of his disciples, teaching them what would happen. And then he ascended into heaven to take his rightful place as king over the kingdom that bears his name. And this gospel, this truth, that Jesus came and died to save sinners, is what bound the church together. No affinity groups based on stages of life. No hobby-based groups. No, well, if I like you, I'll stick around. None of that. It was based on the gospel. And that gospel of God's love for us, that while we're yet sinners, he died for us, that bound them together in a form of glue that is more atomic than anything you can find on earth. What joins us together as the Church of Mission Fellowship is our confession of faith. The confession of faith that we share with the true churches of Jesus Christ throughout the world. The communion in Christ that we enjoy, as well as the common mission we have to reflect Christ's love to one another. Notice what Paul says in Ephesians 4. I think we even read this last week too, but go with me to Ephesians 4 and look at verse 11 and see what Paul tasks the offices of the church or the leaders of the church. See what he tasks them with. Ephesians 4.11, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. Okay, those are what are called offices of the church. They're people that were looked to for leadership within the church. Look at what he says. To equip the saints for the work of ministry. Now, we're going to see what that means, how they are equipped for the work of ministry. For the building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, 
by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So let me ask you a question. For each part of the body that Jesus, or that, that, excuse me, that Paul just stated, when it is doing well, when it is healthy, when it is working rightly in the church, when it is ministering correctly, what is it doing? Say that again louder. Can everybody say that for me? Loving. Loving. When each part of the body is doing what it's called to do, and it's healthy, it's loving. The church in Ephesus was not acting in a way that reflected this amazing truth. The letter of Ephesians was written to rebuild from the ground up a healthy understanding of what the church was to be. And I think this is so badly needed today. If you're here as a visitor from another church, I pray that you would walk out of here today on fire to go serve your local church. That you can't wait to get back to the people that annoy the snot out of you so that you can love them and in so doing show the amazing unity and reconciliation power of Jesus Christ. Here's how one commentator, Max Turner, puts it in the New Bible Commentary. He says, This letter challenges the pietistic individualism and corresponding weak doctrine of the church that we so often find in evangelicalism. Don't look at the church, we say. Look at Christ. Paul, however expected the outsider to see Christ and God's, un, or God's unifying purpose for the world precisely in the church. Ephesians challenges all of us to find better ways of making our local churches real communities of people whose lives and worship together as a church witness to the cosmic unity begun in Christ and are deeply imbued with his presence. Rather than shift the the responsibility of ministry and evangelism to the the guy standing up front, or the person that's gifted in, in speaking, Paul wants us, just like he wanted Ephesus, to accept and own the responsibility that we each have as part of the body. Each part of the whole body, Paul refers to them as members, properly reflecting the kingdom of God, and thus showing his wisdom and glory to the world. You see, our leadership's goal for this church, the 20 of us that are leaders and staff, much like Paul and Timothy's goal for the church of Ephesus, is that we become a truly healthy church that doesn't measure our health by the numbers of attendees on a Sunday, right? This is the biggest group we've had in months. doesn't mean we're healthy. When we're small, does that mean we're we're unhealthy? It doesn't measure it by attendees on Sunday. It doesn't measure it by consumeristic strategies and programs that meet my family's needs. We don't measure our health by these things. We measure our health by whether or not we are loving one another. So throughout the history of the church, see, God agrees. (laughs) 
I had to do that. That was funny. Okay. For the recording, just so everybody hears me, the sun just shines through the, the window there. So that's so people who listen to the internet don't think I'm crazy. Okay. Uh, Throughout the church, people who have written about the healthy church have talked about what marks make up a healthy church. Martin Luther did this. He wrote Marks of a Healthy Church. There are many opinions today. One of the things that we're going to be doing as a church is for those of us who are committed to the church and step into membership is that we're going to have discipleship groups for you. And in those discipleship groups, we're going to be using an imperfect tool, but it's a tool nonetheless, that'll start discussions called the Nine Marks, uh, the, the Nine Marks series of books. And in these books, there are many different opinions, some of which we agree with and some of which we don't, the majority of which we agree with, that will help us start to understand what the marks of a healthy church are. And at the same time we're going to be doing that, we're going to be entering into those discussions in those small groups. We will be looking to Scripture here on Sunday mornings in the book of Ephesians because I don't want you to think that we're jumping off board onto some human teaching. And we're going to look at what Paul says under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And we're going to see that the pieces of foundation that he puts in place slowly but surely show us the marks of what a true healthy church are. And in the like five minutes I have left, we're going to look at the first one that will carry us through for the next couple of weeks as myself and Patrick teach you. Here's the first one, and this is the last point we'll finish with today now that we understand the background of Ephesus and Ephesians a bit more. For the marks of a healthy church, according to Paul, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the first thing that we see is we see Jesus at the core. Jesus at the core. What does it look like for Mission Fellowship to be a healthy church? Well, if we don't have Jesus at the core, and I firmly mean this, if you think that I don't preach the gospel, if we don't have Jesus at the core, then you are absolutely right to leave this church. Absolutely right. If you think that I don't teach the gospel every Sunday, you have my blessing to leave this church. Jesus is at the core. Let's look back at Ephesians chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now often we read past these introductions as if they're nothing, but here's what I want to do. I want to take it and I want to speak it to you in the heavy definition of much of the wording here. And I'm going to say it in a different way, and I want you to understand this is not inspired, this is not the word of God I'm about to say, but to get us to understand what's going on here, here's what it says. Paul, sent as a special messenger on behalf of the Messiah, the anointed king, Jesus. By the will of Yahweh, the Father God, with a message for the people set apart in holiness in Ephesus, who give their allegiance to the anointed King Jesus above all else. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus, the anointed King. Three times in this short passage, we see Jesus at the core the one sent on behalf of Jesus to those that are allegiant to Jesus the King. And he bids them grace and peace from the Father and the Son. And in this, we see in spades Paul's desire to keep Jesus at the center of all that would be taught. At the core of our church and at the core of every one of our lives, we must start here. 
We can't go any further in Ephesians, any further as a church, unless every one of us that actually proclaim the name of Jesus as our Savior examine, are we his? Are we in Christ? If you're here today and you don't know, or maybe you have denied Christ your entire life, every time you are presented with the gospel, one of two things happens. You either accept it or you harden your heart that much more to God's saving message of eternal grace. I would beg of you, if you are a non-believer here today, to recognize that walking in a way that says, I don't need the gospel grace of Jesus, is to say that you are an enemy of the creator God that made you and the God that will come back as a judge to question how you've lived your life. You need his grace because you are an enemy of him. The Bible is very clear that the way that we step into his grace is by faith. Nothing that we've done, nothing we've earned, we simply say, I'm yours. You're my Lord, my Savior, my King. You died for me. At that moment, we begin a walk. For the rest of our lives, we begin learning what it is to walk in the truth of that statement I just uttered. The vow, in terms of marriage, so to speak, is made then. And it begins then. And the Bible says that is the moment of salvation. But the proof of that salvation is worked out the rest of your lives. And this is the truth that is at the core of who we are as a church and who we each need to be as Christians. And so I would ask those of you who don't know Jesus today, what are you waiting for? At the end of the service, I'm going to be in the back, and I would beg of you to come back and talk with me about what it is to acknowledge Jesus as Savior and King and what it is to walk with him as a Christian. For those of us who do know him in this room, those of us who, and I'm not talking to visitors here for a second, but those of us who go to Mission Fellowship, I would ask of you to examine yourselves and say, am I truly the Lord's? Am I in Christ? Because the answer to that question will set up the entire rest of this book. As we enter this book and this season as a church, I would ask all of us to point our eyes to the message, the person, and the work of Jesus Christ and examine whether or not we are his. And I believe that if we do this from this letter and verse 3 onward, we will understand in a deeper way God's grace and God's peace that Paul wishes for the church. Not only individually, but as a church. And then... When we are equipped and operating in a healthy way, we will be a massive force in this city and this world that so desperately need to know and to see the reflection of Jesus Christ. That's my hope for this church. And I pray that we would all lay down our lives to accomplish it. Let's pray. Worship team, you can come up.